Just be like Stella and get your groove back. <laughs> that reference is older than Joey. Yes, it is. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. I'm officially a real podcaster now, alright. <laughs> Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. For the Legion. <laughs> and I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com along with some awesome featured community content such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC is a fantastic deck building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on EDHRECcast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? The Boros Legion and problems with the Boros Legion. Or lack right. thereof. Right, right. We've said it a handful of times on the podcast so far, and if you've listened to other Commander content, I'm sure you've heard that Boros has a couple of deficiencies or a couple of issues that kind of plague their ability to play well within Commander games. And we want to address some of those problems, diagnose them, see what the data says on EDHREC that can maybe help us solve some of those problems. Before we get started, did you guys play any fun games this week? I didn't play this week because I was busy moving to Colorado. But a couple weeks ago, I actually played a really fun game that turned uh, wild, if you will. So somebody was playing a, uh, a red-white hate bears deck. And so he was playing like Containment Priest. Uh, he had Vidalcan Ori because everything he was doing kept coming at instant speed. So someone cast a show and tell and everybody is instantly like, oh man, what is he going to cheat in? Because it's going to be big and fat and ugly. But so the Boros player happens because he had his Vidalcan Ori out and can cast everything at instant speed, cast Stronghold Gambit. Do you guys know what Stronghold Gambit does? I have no idea. I haven't heard of this one. So it's old, old. It's actually some legacy reanimator tech. So each player chooses a card in their hand. Then each player reveals their chosen card. The owner of each creature card revealed with the lowest converted mana cost puts it onto the battlefield. So it's essentially like whoever has the cheapest thing, they can sneak it into play if it's a creature and it's a sorcery that costs one and a red. So nobody saw this coming. So everybody, you know, a couple people reveal, you know, some four and five drops because it's kind of late in the game. So Stronghold Gambit Boy reveals a Containment Priest because he didn't have white mana and puts Containment Priest in and everybody instantly is like, well, now we can't do anything with show and tell. So it's just hilarious to watch this awkward boros hate bears and like nobody plays stronghold gambit in commander either which was the really fun part i think it's played in less than 500 decks total so this guy was just completely off the walls hosing everybody um it was just really interesting and, and fun to watch so i have a quick question about containment priest that's the one that prevents uh, creatures from entering the battlefield if mana wasn't spent to cast If they them. weren't cast, they have right. to cast them. Yeah, they can cast them without paying mana cost, but they have to cast them. And you said that he used a spell that was normally sorcery speed, but used Vidalcan Ori to cast that spell to put it into play. Is that right? Yes, but Containment Priest does not do it on itself. Yeah, it has flash. Right, but Containment Priest doesn't exile itself if it, if it were to be cheated into play. 
I'm just kind of curious why he felt the need to use a spell to cast the flash. I, that's because, all that I'm trying to figure because, out. Well, he didn't have white mana. Uh, okay, now I'm following. Now I'm following. And, the, and he was doing it all in response to a show and tell where everybody was going to get something big and stupid out. That's really right. clever. I like that. Yeah. Right. Now, I granted, the show and tell player put an omniscience into play and just did everything stupid anyways. Oh. But, yeah. Well, it wasn't a happy ending after all. It wasn't a happy ending, but it was really funny watching... Just the Boros player that could. Well. Well, I kind of have a maybe a meta question for you guys and for any of our listeners that want to pipe up too. Um, so I went over to Minneapolis a couple weekends ago for the Star City Games. Uh, Minneapolis is a modern event. Uh, well, they had like a bunch of side events. So I played a couple side pods and then just played pickup games of Commander with people all day. And I played in, I think, six different pods. And one thing I noticed playing there was I think at least one person, if not two people, in every single pod I played in, somebody had a divining top out, which isn't, I guess, really shocking because it's a pretty commonly played card, except for in my home meta in the shop I play in, I probably haven't seen a divining top in years. I mean, it's been years since I've seen one played, um, to the point where I kind of forgot it was a card that existed. So seeing it, you know, the first time somebody played, I was like, oh, Divining Top. I haven't seen that in forever. And, and then, like, next game, someone plays one. And then the next game, there's two of them out. And the next game, like, so it was just a weird meta thing seeing, like, oh, I'm in a meta where everyone has stopped running top and stopped running it quite a while ago versus all these people that were playing at this at, at SCG tournament. Everyone had a top in their decks. So I'm just wondering if you guys have encountered in the wild something like that where, like, your meta maybe, you know, had a card that was super common that didn't get played anywhere else, or maybe had cards that people quit playing for some reason that you go outside that meta and are like, oh man, I forgot everyone played this card. I, not quite that level of meta whiplash, but I do have two separate playgroups that I tend to, to hang out with and play games. And we play Commander in both of those groups, and sometimes they overlap, but in one of them, generally there aren't a whole lot of board wipes, and then in the other group with my buddies from back home, there tend to be a whole lot. So that's been one of the main things when I'm playing between my two groups of friends. That is the the shift in meta that I encounter most often, trying to readjust to a meta where I can sort of play my big threats with minimal risk versus a place where if I put a bunch of stuff on the field, it's going to get wiped almost instantly. I'll be curious what Matt experiences having moved to a new place, and he'll be, I'm assuming, finding a new meta here at some point, so I'll be wondering yeah. what he experiences there. Yeah, I'm, I'll be trying to find a new store, new play group to, to jam at. So if anybody here listening uh, knows any good stores in Colorado Springs area, um, let me know. Give me a shout. I'm more than happy to go check them out. And that's kind of one thing I'm, I'm just excited about in general is seeing how do ever, how does everybody play, not just from like state to state, obviously, but even just store to store in new areas. Before I moved, I, I kind of settled into one store and, you know, one specific play group, really. So, but I have a bunch of decks kind of across the board, uh, power wise. I've got like my formerly Narset, but still souped up Jeskai tokens. Then I've got kind of my derpy, you know, uh, gosh, Gliss of the Trader. That was it. Yeah. But yeah, so I've got cards or and decks just all over the place of, of varying power levels. So hopefully I'll get to play all of them still, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see if from one state to the next, the Boros problem, quote unquote, isn't as much of a problem. Who knows? 
So let's dial in on that, quote, Boros problem. We've mentioned a couple times on the podcast, and if you listen to other Commander content, I'm sure you've heard that Boros can have some problems, some deficiencies in the Commander format when you're playing. Dana, I know that you've got a bunch of data here for us from EDHREC about the decks on EDHREC per color pair, and I think that might help us focus on what precisely this Boros problem is. It'll help facilitate the conversation. Do you want to get started off on some of the data that we see here about the two color pairs and which is most popular and least popular? Sure. So the first thing I'll note is the first thing I looked up when this this conversation came up was I went through and just looked to see what the most popular uh, commanders were in each color pair. And the first thing that caught my eye is Boros doesn't have a single general that's in four digits. So there's no Boros commander that has more than a thousand decks. Um, and it's the only one that isn't. Every other color pair has at least one, if not two. And some pairs have, you know, three or four or five different commanders that have over a thousand decks and there's not not a single one for boros so then I, I we had don at at the website pull all the data for the color pairs to see how many decks there were in each individual guild pairing so there was there's like eleven thousand five hundred golgari decks that's number one and then it drops down to you know azorius is at about 9500 dimmer is pretty close selesnia is just you know 100 below that simic as well but way down at the bottom is Boros in just over 6,000 decks. So there's almost twice as many Golgari decks as there is uh, Boros decks in the database. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting metric. We've all talked a handful of times about how Simic is really busted, so I'm interested to see that it's actually right there smack dab in the middle. And I've mentioned before that Golgari, man, I can play nothing but Golgari for the rest of my commander career and I'll be set. And it seems like a lot of other people are doing that too. Like you mentioned, there are twice as many Golgari decks as there are Boros decks. That's a really big distinction. To go back to the data that you mentioned about the quadruple digits, we can see that Marin of Clan Neltoth, for example, has 3,000 decks and Gitrog Monster has 1,500 and even Hapatra has 1,002. But the highest played Boros commander is Aurelia the Warleader at merely 803. And that's, that's pretty crazy. It seems like even though we abstractly talk about this Boros problem, I mean, it, the data definitely supports it. There definitely seem to be a lot less people who are trying to do Boros in EDH. Well, and I think it's kind of funny that you pointed out that, you know, the top three Golgari commanders outnumber every Boros commander combined. So everything else outside those top three, and we know there's more than three good Golgari commanders, you know, everything outside those top three is just gravy. Like, it, it's just... Yeah, it's a very stark difference that, you know, it only takes three commanders to outweigh everything that Boros has to offer. Well, and it's not like right. those Golgari commanders are old and have had an eternity to build up decks. Hapatra's maybe a year old. Um, Marin's a couple years, but Gitrog Monster's, I think, only about two years old as well. So that's not that much time to accumulate data. And in those short intervals, they've racked up more than the oldest existing Boros commanders. That's definitely true. So let's stop talking about that abstract, why is Boros so bad? Let's get into some of the details about why it isn't. At the, about why, I mean, about why it is, quote, bad in Commander. One of the things that we hear most often is that it lacks the ability to draw cards and it lacks the ability to ramp up its mana. Usually those are effects that we see in other colors. Blue is particularly the king of drawing cards and green is the color of ramping up mana. We also can see those abilities in the other colors, though mainly located sort of in the Soltai area. 
because like even black can pay life to draw a bunch of cards with necropotence or with read the bones or knight's whisper and then green can also draw cards with things like elemental bond or shamanic revelation or greater good even blue sometimes has access to a couple of ramping up my mana just so that i can use my mana to cast colorless spells with some certain vidalcan creatures so all of those colors seem to have those effects in in, in a whole lot of their, their cards, a whole lot of their different possible options, but we don't see them as much in red and white, which can kind of be a problem in a multiplayer game. Well, in, in, in the, my argument here, is, and it'll be this way throughout the show, is I think Boros does have a lot of those things. I think it didn't once upon a time, you know, three, five, six years ago or so, but I think a lot of those things have been addressed and I think, by and large, this is an issue of perception versus an issue of reality. I think a lot of these things have been fixed and maybe weren't even that broken to begin with. So I think one of the, the, the stance I'm going to take here is Boros is okay. Yeah, we'll get into that in a second because I actually sort of do half agree with you, but we want to lay the groundwork for the problem sure. itself. The One of the reasons why lacking card advantage spells and lacking mana ramp can be an issue is that in a 20 life format, well, you don't really need those things. One of the things that Boros, that red and white are very good at is their speed with white weenie decks or with mono red burn decks. But in a game of Commander, you don't have one opponent with 20 life. You have multiple opponents with a combined 120 life. So that speed is all but eliminated, which means that colors that do have access to cards that push them into the late game, they are inherently just going to have an easier time in a longer form game. That, that strength of speed has been reduced somewhat. But you also mentioned that Boros may have a couple of workarounds for those uh, lack of card draw spells or lack of mana ramp. Do you want to get into a handful of examples for those, Dana? Um, well, sure. Um, and the first thing I want to quickly address is the speed thing. Um, I think you're absolutely right. In a 20-life format, speed is something Boros is strong in. But when you remove that, I, I think it's perfectly viable playing a grindy game if you want to do that and you're not just closing your eyes and tunnel visioned on playing your commander deck exactly like you played your modern deck. I think that's what a lot of this problem is. People get that in their headspace and don't want to look at other options. And an example would be, you mentioned draw, right? Yeah, you know, it doesn't have Blue Sun Zenith and it doesn't have Ambition's Cost and Ancient Craving or it doesn't have Riskard's Expertise, but Red's got a lot of things, most of which have been added in the last five years. It has a ton of rummaging spells, all of which are relatively efficient. And even though those don't get you card advantage, they do get you card quality. Um, Cathartic Reunion, Faithless Looting, Magmatic Insight, Tormenting Voice, uh, Wild Guess, those are all cards that have added in the last five years, and they really fit that that early, you know, spend a couple mana to get gas into hand and maybe pitch a land you don't need. Those are all really, really good cards, and people seem to want to dismiss them because they're, they, they require you to play the game a little bit differently than maybe um, Read the Bones does. Right. You also mentioned there's sort of... A lot of people will play it like a modern deck. They'll run all of their stuff out. And maybe one way that folks in a Boros color pair can kind of temper that back is to play a little more wisely, play with their eyes towards the late game as opposed to running everything out and then getting, I don't know, blown out by a Wrath of God or something. 
waiting and holding their cards might be a better strategy so that they can adjust and use their resources wisely when they anticipate a longer game. That could be another workaround solution as well. Matt, what are some of the workaround solutions that you see for Boros? I think the big thing that you guys pointed out, but besides being 20 life, is that it's a singleton format. So a lot of what Boros does efficiently, if you look at, you know, those those modern, you know, and even standard uh, 60 card decks that they were they rely on four ofs. And so only having one bolt, you know, if you had a deck full of them, then yeah, it'd be a very different story. But just those singleton nature just really, really hurts Boros, I think, more than anything because it doesn't have a ton of those card draw spells. You have a lot of card filtering, like Dana mentioned. You know, Faithless Looting, recently even, you know, in, in a modern tournament, was referred to on Star City Games coverage as a, a modern brainstorm in red. I don't think it's quite that powerful, but, you know, just being able to see that many cards, you do get to dig for your answers pretty quickly. But just still only having one of your most powerful effects when you're trying to end the game quickly, as Boros tends to do, that's where it really hurts is just the singleton nature of it because uh, yeah, you just don't have ways to get there near as reliably, I guess. And one thing right. I'll point out about those rummaging spells as well, Pyromancer's goggles exists and it's a fantastic card mm-hmm. in general. I mean, it probably goes in a whole lot of Boros decks and the way every one of those rummaging spells are worded, the discard is part of the casting cost. So when you copy a Cathartic Reunion, you don't have to discard a second time. You just draw twice as many cards. When you copy Magmatic Insight, you don't need to pitch a second land. You just draw two cards in addition to the two you were drawing to start with. So you should probably be running Pyromancer's Goggles in a lot of those Boros decks. And that card makes every one of those rummaging spells radically better. I mean, there was an entire standard deck built around it at the time. Yeah, I think the the thing that people look at Boros with the draw spells like we're talking about now is that it's not conditional draw three cards like they get in blue. Right. So they're just always comparing, you know, all the draw spells that you have in Boros colors, they're comparing it to the blue draw spells and they're just very different. And you can build your deck around ways so that, you know, you, you know, you have to discard a couple cards to faithless looting. You have to discard a land of magmatic insight. But if you build your deck, right, you know, you can get a crucible of worlds. So all these extra lands you're discarding, you're still using. So you just have to be a little more thoughtful. I think to make those the downsides, quote-unquote, for the, the draw spells in red, less of a downside. Because everybody just compares it to, you know, how does black draw? They just pay a couple life, and they get to draw the cards and keep them. In red, sure, you have to do, do it a little bit differently. White, you might have to pay a really uncomfortable rate, you know, with like champion, uh, champion of the Meek, or Mentor of the Meek, I'm sorry. But they're still very viable, especially when you're, like we're talking about, playing towards the late game. Um, it's just getting there is the issue, and everybody's kind of shoehorns it into what does the the Boros decks and modern and standard and legacy do when right. you're really not doing that. And that and that's that's just rummaging cards. You also have all the impulse draw, like mm-hmm. outpost siege and Vance's blasting cannons. I ran act on impulse in a really low CMC deck, and it almost always netted me two cards. Commune um, with lava is another good one. Yeah, there's the enemy impulse cards now, like Atali and Stolen Strategy. And there was the one that's leaked out of Core 2019, Apex of Power, which I don't know if it's playable, but like that seems to be a thing they're adding to that's recently added. And Reds right. always had wheels, and they they're they're making new ones, maybe not that regularly, but like we've you know Chandra Flamecaller has a great wheel baked into her, so there's some really solid ones there. Yeah, Chandra Flamecaller is fantastic. Like as a nice, if that is your top end, that's 
not a bad way to, to get to your top end right there. And, and even though it's 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 not a it's not a draw spell, but like red's got a ton of copy effects as well. And okay, so it's not additional cards, but like being able to copy something that you've already cast is a resource advantage. It's not a card advantage, but like maybe you just need to alter your perception of what you're going to get for an advantage and, and understand it's going to be a little more challenging in red versus black, where, like you said, you just pay a couple life, get a couple cards, and you're good to go. Or the tutor effects in black and everything, right. too, yeah. That's Joey, what's of, going on? I've, I've been trying to speak for the past 10 minutes. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, you mentioned a whole lot of different possible options in there. Uh, specifically, the impulse draw is one that I've recently become a fan of, as you mentioned with Atali. That impulse draw being revealing something off of the top of someone's deck, maybe yours, maybe other people's, and you can play them either that turn using your mana or, in the case of Atali, you can play them for free. Matt, you mentioned Mentor of the Meek. That's one possible option. White has that one creature that allows it to draw cards if you play tiny creatures, which is one of the reasons that I dislike Azuri because I feel like he shouldn't be using tiny creatures because it's clearly something that White does, but that's entirely separate. We Easy. also have equipment draw in White, such as with SRAM Senior Edificer and Pure Steel Paladin. There are a handful of effects. We've also got other artifacts such as Mind's Eye or the Immortal Sun, which they don't belong to any particular color, and colors like blue maybe don't feel the need to run mind's eye because they already have other types of draw spells but they can be a really great catch-up card in a boros deck and that's another really great option as well however a handful of cards that you guys mentioned were a little bit expensive matt for example you mentioned tossing your lands with those uh those rummaging effects and then using crucible of worlds to get them back so that you're not losing out on resources but crucible of worlds is a really expensive card Another possible option that I mentioned, for example, was the Immortal Sun, and that's not precisely cheap either. Dana, you mentioned that there are wheel effects in red. Not all of them will draw you back up to seven cards, but one of the most famous ones does, and that's Wheel of Fortune. It's three mana, everyone pitches their hand, and then you draw seven. If you're playing red and you don't have a whole bunch of cards in your hand, bam, that's excellent, and you feel like you've just drawn a bunch of cards for really cheap. But the problem is that that's a reserve list card, and as we've been seeing in the past year, Man, those prices have been increasing. So even though there are some workarounds, they can be for somewhat niche strategies. Things like Itali, that can go in basically any red deck, and that's really excellent. And I love seeing that Wizards is designing in that area now. But things like Mentor of the Meek, well, not every red or white deck might be running tiny creatures necessarily. They might be running equipment. And they're things like SRAM and Pierce to Paladin Flourish, but maybe not every red or white deck is running equipment, they're actually running tiny creatures. So the, the card draw spells can be a little divided in places, and they can be expensive in other places as well, which kind of can hamper people's ability to catch up in card advantage spells while playing a Boros deck. Well, I think yeah, that, like, that's going to be something we're going to see, though, here, I think, with Boros, where people want to attribute problems to Boros that are also issues elsewhere... Intuition is one of the best draw spells in blue, and it's also on the reserve list and is also crazy expensive. Yawgmoth's Will is one of the best resource advantages spells in black, and it's on the reserve list as well. I mean, I, there's expensive reserve list cards that do great, great things, but it's not just red that has that issue. That's an issue in every other color, but it seems to be the kind of thing that in Boros people focus on in ways they don't in other colors, I think, because they're still in that it's, you know, 2012 mindset with Boros, and it's not 2012 anymore. We've got a bunch of good cards since then. Right. One of my favorite things that you mentioned also is that 
the way that we can accrue card advantage in any game, including Magic the Gathering, isn't necessarily by having more cards in your hand. You're looking for cards that will give you more game actions per turn, and we've mentioned a card on a previous cast with Dean, which is Assemble the Legion. That's a red and white enchantment that gives you more and more creatures every turn as it stays out on the battlefield. It'll start by giving you one, and then two, and then three, and before you know it, it's taking over the game. That card isn't drawing you any cards, but it is providing you with significant and increased advantage over the course of a longer game. And those are the types of effects that I would definitely like to see a whole lot more of in Red and White, because they, sort of like Atali, can adjust to the scale of the game really, really well, and they don't break the color pie by making Red or White draw a bunch of cards. And that, in particular, actually, is the point that I want to hammer home. A lot of folks are saying, oh, you know, Red and White need to draw cards if they want to do any good in EDH, but that isn't necessarily true. Because if they were to draw cards, they'd be broken in the 20 life formats. Right. We don't want the fast colors to be able to also have card advantage. They'd steamroll everyone else in the single player format. Like, just if you're playing modern and the mono red burn deck can draw cards, the game is over before it's begun. Those restrictions need to stay there. And there are some other workarounds, both in the game, such as, you know, the cards we've mentioned like SRAM or Itali, but also other workarounds such as Assemble the Legion that mirror card advantage without actually providing cards in hand. Yeah, and like we said, it's just everybody thinks card advantage is, you know, drawing cards and putting them in your hand and, you know, having Reliquary Tower and you have 15 cards in your hand, and that's just not what Boros does. So it's just unfair to put those expectations on Boros. Boros is going to be either discarding cards, you're going to only be able be able to cast them for a turn or something like that. Yeah, we you still have options. It's just not that unconditional put X cards into your hand like everybody wants to think uh, is what you should be doing. Right. We'll get into that in a little bit. We'll hammer out that section a little more, I think. But for now, I'm kind of in the mood to talk about a handful of statistics. So let's move into the head-to-head segment where we try and guess which of these cards is more popular. Matt, would you like to start us off on head-to-head? Sure, I, I can today. Uh, so, two of my favorite cards uh, in Boros, they were in my Tajik Blade of Legion deck for a long, long time, are Yokel Hops and Obliterate. So, Yokel Hops, or actually, let's start with Obliterate. So, Obliterate is a red sorcery for six and two red. Obliterate can't be countered, and it reads, destroy all artifacts, creatures, and lands. They can't be regenerated. All right, whereas Yokel Hops here, uh, is also a red sorcery for four and two red, and it just reads, destroy all artifacts, creatures, and lands. They can't be regenerated. So one is a six-mana sorcery, one's an eight-mana sorcery. They both do the same thing, except Obliterate can't be countered, whereas Yokel Hops has. Which one do you guys think's, uh, think gets played more? Man, I, I, I'm going to guess Obliterate, because I think Yokel Hops has only had that one Ice Age printing, whereas I think obliterates had one or two corset printings maybe even with a modern border so i just think yokel hops is the kind of thing that maybe people don't even know exists whereas obliterate is the kind of thing people wish they didn't know existed <laughs> so, I'm, so i'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with obliterate suspended with joyra i suspended with joyra that's a good point actually joyra is definitely where i know obliterate from but I know the card Yokel Hops from the Maelstrom Wanderer decks, they tend to cascade into the Yokel Hop spell, which will resolve before the Maelstrom Wanderer actually hits the battlefield. And since that's at a lower mana cost than Obliterate, 
it can therefore actually be cascaded into. So I think Obliterate would be kind of overlooked for that deck. And I don't know, I can't remember which is more popular, Joyra or Maelstrom Wanderer, but my gut instinct right now is telling me that Yokel Hops is showing up more. Matt, what's the real answer? So Joey, you get it by a Ooh. whole 32 decks. So Yokel Hops is in 2416 decks, Obliterate 2374. So it's pretty close. But it is Yokel Hops edging it out. Uh, it doesn't matter if you win by an inch or a mile, <laughs> or if you win by 32 decks, or one deck, or 10,000 decks. Joey's going to win it, just like you he's going to win the bet from the Battle Bond set review. That's eh, not going to happen. But you did win today, <laughs> so congrats. But yeah, I, I really like both of these spells because they're just great board wipes. It's, it gets rid of everything. And when you have Tajik, Blade of Legion, who is indestructible, you can two everybody to death while, you know, you just kind of sit there and do your thing, so... So Matt likes destroying everyone's resources. I've said it many times, but Matt, you're a mean, mean man, Mr. Morgan. I, I, I do deserve it this time. I, I will concede that. Dana, what's your head-to-head this week? My head-to-head is three cards that will do absolutely no good against Obliterate. And what these cards are is I was curious. I assumed the original Counterspell was the most frequently played Counterspell in Commander, and it is. But then I was like, well, well, what would number two be? And I genuinely like didn't have a guess. So I, I will give you the next three in the list and see if you guys can figure out which one of these three is number two behind Counterspell. And the next three in alphabetical order are Arcane Denial, Negate, and Swan Song. So which of, of those three is the second most frequently played Counterspell in Commander? So Arcane Denial counters a spell, but the controller of that spell draws two cards and you draw one card on the next turn. Yes. Swan Song gives them back a 2-2 bird after it counters an instant sorcery or enchantment, and then Negate can just counter any non-creature. Am I remembering them all correctly? That is correct for all of those. My guess, even though I think it might be wrong, uh, at least... So I think I'm right when I guess that the next one is Swan Song. It's one mana which makes it really appealing to players. But I was actually going to save that for a challenge, the stats in a future episode, where I kind of think that Negate might be a little more efficient sometimes, because you don't give someone back a blocker, and it can counter a wider range of spells. So my bet's on Swan Song, but in my personal decks, I found Negate to be really useful. Matt, what do you think? So Arcane <laughs> Denial was in a couple pre-cons. Yeah, yeah. Negate has been Negate has been like perpetually reprinted every 20 minutes. Swan Song <laughs> also was in a precon, but I don't think it was near as popular. So I, I think I think Swan Song is number four. I think it goes down to Negate or Arcane Denial. I I give this a confidence rating of about two out of ten, but I'm gonna go with Negate over Arcane Denial, even though I think drawing cards is is kind of tempting. Negate would have been my guess as well. The correct answer, however, is Swan Song. Uh, it's in twenty-one. I'm excellent. Just at this. over twenty-one thousand decks. Yes, yes, you are. Today you are on. Um, Arcane Denial's number two in this list, which makes it number three overall, and Negate is number four. Number four. Yeah. I just think it's way better than that. I, I think they're all three really, really good. Um, I, I was actually kind of expecting to see some bad counter spells ahead of those three because it, it makes sense. I think those are probably the next three, ignoring, of course, Mana Drain because of the price and Force of Will. Those are probably, power-wise, the ones that should be in that spot in the list. So I was just expecting to see them not be there maybe because they were 
I thought Swan Song for sure would be underrated, and it's not. People realize how good it is. It is definitely a good spell, that's for sure. Um, so, so far, we've had someone who likes to destroy lands, and then you who like to counter spells. So we're winning a whole bunch of favor right now. You guys are doing some of the best things that people like to see. Lots well, Joey, of interaction. What do, you, what do you like to do, then, that's just so friendly? What I like to do is play Mana Rocks. My head-to-head this week is between the Mana Rocks Commander Sphere and Mindstone. Commander Sphere being the three-mana artifact that can tap to add one mana of any color in your, co- in your commander's color identity to your mana pool. And you can sacrifice it to draw a card. Mindstone, on the other hand, is two mana, but it only taps for a colorless mana. And you can pay one and tap it to sacrifice it and then draw a card. Which of those do you guys think is seeing more play right now in EDH? So I am going to guess Commander Sphere. Yeah, you know, Mindstone is two mana, um, and that's that's kind of the sweet spot. You want to ideally run two mana rocks, usually. But man, Commander Sphere is really, really good, and the fact that you can sacrifice it when it's tapped or after you've used it is something that I think kind of gets overlooked about how powerful that effect is. It's also been in a ton of decks, so I'm going to go with Command Sphere, but it wouldn't shock me if that was if, if Mindstone was, in fact, the right answer. Uh, I'm going to take the same stance as Dana here. I think Commander Sphere, it's just been, it's been in like every precon, I think, at least one per year since it's been introduced, right? Um, yeah, it's, it feels like it anyway. Yeah, so I, I think that probably by itself gets it ahead of Mindstone, even though I know Mindstone's pretty old and it's been at a bunch of Masters sets. But being able to, like Dana said, tap it for mana, sack it to draw a card all in the same turn. And it's, you know, it's color fixing as well. I think that's something that it has a leg up over in Mindstone. I'm going to go with Commander Sphere as well. So you are both correct. Commander Sphere is seeing more play than Mindstone. Commander Sphere currently shows up in 46,828 decks as compared to Mindstone, which is showing up in a still respectable 31,478. These are both mana rocks that I do enjoy playing. Uh, I do have to hand it to Commander Sphere, though. You guys are definitely right that the color fixing is really vital there. And Dana, as you mentioned, being able to tap it for mana and then sacrifice it to draw a card is really neat tech. That said, you know, in the right deck, I feel like there is room for both. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's also one last thing that I kind of want to mention about Arcane Denial that I forgot to mention, and that's that Arcane Denial can actually be used on your own spells. This is kind of a weird trick, but it's a little bit like people in Modern remanding their own spell after they get into a counter spell war. You can Arcane Denial one of your own spells if you think that it's going to get countered, and then you'll draw three cards on the next turn, because that spell's controller draws two cards, and you will draw one that's super handy as well. So that might be one of the reasons why it has some extra numbers in its favor. Alrighty, so let's head back into the topic about Boros. And particularly, I kind of want to put the question to you guys. This is a thing that I've heard asked a handful of times. What does Wizards of the Coast need to do to fix Boros as a color pair for EDH? Well, I don't even think it's an issue of fixing Boros, because I think that in the past couple years, like we've mentioned a few times, Wizards has really started designing cards with uh, Commander in mind. So it's not so much they need to fix Boros because I don't think it's broken necessarily. And we, you know, we've kind of pointed on that a little bit. Uh, but what do they need to keep doing? Keep, you know, pushing a little bit more because they've started doing some really good things for Boros and Commander. It's just 
they need to keep doing it, I think is a, a better way to put it uh, than it is to fix it. That's a good point. And I, I do agree with you. That's actually been over the course of the past couple of years. My stance on how Boros fits in Commander, it has been changing. And I have started to disagree with the premise of the question, what to do to, quote, fix Boros, because it isn't, as you said, necessarily broken. It just functions within the game in a different way that a lot of the other colors do. One of the things that I've heard a lot of people talk about is how every Boros commander that comes out is just combat-oriented. You know, we have Aurelia, the ward leader, who gives you extra combat steps, or we have Kalemni, who just has double strike. We just got a handful of those Boros commanders that feel boring to folks because all that they do is fight, 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 and they're not as creative as, for example, some of the Golgari options that we've got. We've got Virtus and Gorm, which does combat, but we also have Marin, who does necromancy, and Gitrog, who does landfall, and Hypatra, who does minus one counters. And I do think that there is room for more diversity within the red-white color pair, for sure. It would be nice to see less of the combat-oriented commanders but at the same time, I also think that Wizards is trying to send us a signal that we need to temper our expectations just a little because these effects, like fighting people, bringing them from their full life total down to zero, that's what these colors are good at. The strength, as we mentioned earlier, is their speed. So while we could see a little diversity, I also think that, you know, we are getting kind of what we should expect in a way. Does that make sense? Well, I think they've also addressed that a little bit. Like, if you look, I mean, even just in standard right now, if you look at the standard legal Boros commanders, you've got Dapala, who actually interacts with vehicles. There's nothing else like Dapala out there and has card advantage baked in, which is a whole new thing. You have Atali in mono red, who, as we mentioned before, gives you that, you know, rump, that, that um, impulse draw effect with other people's stuff. You have Fire Song and Sunspeaker, which is a whole new way to play Boros with the life gain tacked onto direct damage. You have Neheb the Eternal in Mono Red, who lets you gain a ton of mana based on damage you do. You've got Squee, you've got Tiana, you have the new um, Boros pair in Battlebond, uh, Sylvia Brightspear and Corvath Brightflame, which gives you a way to build a Dragon Knight deck. So I think that it's absolutely a criticism of Boros that they, you know, kind of got bland combat-based commanders. But I think they've also kind of addressed that as well. Like the la in the last year, year and a half, two years, they've given us some interesting stuff to do in those colors. That's for sure. Matt, I know that you also have a point, not only about maybe the question being improperly phrased, but also about scaling effects in red and white to multiple players. Do you want to tell us a bit what you mean by there? Yeah, so a lot of what Boros does when people think of you know, in terms of the modern decks, you know, you have your burn decks where it's, you know, lightning bolt deals three damage to a target. So, you know, creature or player. But instead of, you know, just to a target, having all these effects read each opponent or each creature, just everything going up a little bit bigger. I mean, that's why you see Perforos God of the Forge is one of the most played cards in red, period. Because every creature, every single creature deals damage to each player. You have stuff like uh, R of Silence and Grasp of Fate that affect the entire table, not just one person. You know, you, you, uh, Joe, I think you were talking about it when we talked about Oblivion Ring. You have Grasp of Fate for the same mana cost, hits something from each opponent, not just one specific permanent. Uh, so just effects like that just help out quite a bit with uh, the, the downfalls of Boros. It's limited in the fact that most of it, what they do, yes, is single target removal, you know, dealing two damage for, you know, on a one mana creature, stuff like that. But 
ways to push, you know, into those each opponent effects. That's I mean, that's why Grey Merchant Rasvidel, for example, is so powerful for Mono Black because it hits each opponent and gains you all that life. So having Perforos continue to, you know, deal damage to each opponent for every creature that comes into play for uh, Impact Tremors, another one along those lines, you know, two cards that I love. Having those types of effects is something that's really going to help fix it. It's not going to break standard. I know they, for a long time, they were worried about making a powerful commander card, you know, break standard. But when you have those each opponents in standard, you only have one opponent. But it also helps, the, you know, commander at the same time. So continuing to push those types of effects, like with Atali, to get that card draw and, and casting those spells from everybody else, those types of the effects that are really going to help people out in commander without hurting standard and card design there. That's, I completely agree. I've kind of actually been a little annoyed every time that I see cards in other colors that also mention each opponent. So for example, we had the card Mind's Dilation come out, and that's a blue enchantment that rips spells off the top of other people's decks after an opponent casts the first spell each turn. When I first saw that, I was like, why is this blue? This would have been an excellent red card. In fact, it feels very red now that we've been seeing all of that impulse draw, like with Atali. And yet, it's a blue card that hits all opponents. Blue doesn't need that. Blue's got all the card advantage it needs, and that would be a great space to explore with other colors. Another example is Lurking Predators. That's a green enchantment from ages ago that flips a card off the top of your deck after any opponent casts a spell, and if it's a creature, bam, it goes straight into play. And that scales incredibly to a multiplayer environment. We've also got something like Dragon Layer Spider, which gets an insect creature every time an opponent casts a spell. Even those effects like Torian Mauler are really good because they get your creature bigger every time an opponent casts a spell. Like Those are excellent effects that don't break the color pie. You don't have to draw a bunch of cards in these colors if your spells are actually scaling well to the environment that you're playing in. That is definitely an, an angle that they could explore maybe a little bit more and possibly reduce in other colors. I feel like those other colors don't need it. And kind of just flavorfully, I feel like Boros as the military color pair, they'd be really excellent at sizing up their multiple opponents and therefore scaling to a multiplayer environment. I feel like they should be better at it than other colors. Like blue, for example, shouldn't necessarily scale very well to multiple opponents because as a mind magic color, it's good at controlling one person, but not necessarily multiple. But I'm sort of waxing philosophical there. The point is each opponent affects things that scale to an environment of multicolor. Those are definitely great ways to get card advantage without necessarily those cards in hand. Again, as we mentioned. my I have a bit of objection to that though. Like I think cards like Perforos and Impact Tremors I think they just reinforce people's bad habits to a degree. All those cards do is reinforce that just play it like modern, dude, and you can just throw dumb red spells and win. I think that's not what Boros needs to do. I think that's not the direction they're moving. And I think maybe if you want to do that, go ahead and play your peripherals. That that's fine. But I think that just reinforces the fact that people want to play Boros like it's burn in modern, and that's not what you need to do. So I don't love those effects. I, th I think they're fine, but I think it reinforces bad habits and encourages people to not be smart Boros players. It encourages you to be the, the San Dimas high school football rules of Boros players. And I don't, <laughs> I, I think that's, that's a bad habit. I don't think maybe that I'm not going to judge you for doing that, but like, I think there's a lot more to Boros out there than that. Um, and I think too many people get caught up in that. We just want to play dumb red burn. 
So, while I can understand half of that argument, I also <laughs> think that there's a bit more nuance to Mono Redburn that isn't quite as, as you said, dumb. If you've played Mono Redburn, Red Deck Wind Spells, and other formats, there's actually a lot of technicality that goes into it because you have to time your spells and the amount of damage that you can deal very wisely within periods of the game before your opponent is able to stabilize and then you have run out of cards in your hand. You have to use your lightning bolts in effective ways if you fear that one of their creatures is going to be getting in the way of your goblin guide, for example. So while it appears to be just a throw all of my stuff at you and then the game is over, boom, boom, clap my hands, everything's good, it's, it's really not quite that. It actually ends up being... Like, the games of Mono Red Burn tend to end really wisely because they, you got, between that point of, like, dealing 19 damage and 20 damage, a lot of care went into making sure that the burn spells were used effectively. Well, and that may be true, but that's not what Perforos does. Perforos is the dumbest burn deck you can play, just period. So, I, I mean, that might be, I guess, true a little bit in Modern, although I would still say that compared to every other Modern deck, it's relatively simple. But... In Commander, if you're playing Perforos and you're just casting a Firecat Blitz for eight or dropping a Temple Discovery, you're just going to win the game and that's it. Like, I, it, it's just a skillless, dumb way to play. And I think, I think people are demanding that from Boros, and I think they shouldn't. There's a lot of clever Boros plays there, and I think people need to look to do that and not just look to have their hand held and win the game with a with dropping nine tokens. I want to put a button in that really quick because I have one more point to talk about about Watsi fixing Boros, but I, I I actually do kind of disagree with you on the Perforos point. I have one more thing to talk about for Wizards of the Coast responsibility towards the color pair. Really quick, Matt, you had something to say though. I was I, I was going to say I think you guys are are arguing two different points completely. You know, Dana, you're talking about Perforos and just making a bunch of tokens. And that's one strategy, but it's also dependent on one card. You know, sure that that card can be your commander, but you know, we we know, you know, throughout the conversations that we've had here on the podcast, uh, exile effects are are a very real thing. Sure. At the same time, Joey's arguing the, the more the burn mentality. You know, you know, play some X spells, play, you know, your your lightning bolts and whatever else. I think they're just you know enjoying red strategies. Myself, they're two very different strategies, and I think you guys are. are kind of arguing trying to make the make them be the same strategy when they're they're really not we we might be talking past each other and hopefully we can iron that out in just a second but i've got one more thing that i think it might be useful for wizards of the coast you know and when it comes to the way that red and white work there's one more i guess kind of a criticism that i have that i find i personally take umbrage with when it comes to this color pair and that is actually when i look at the card leovold emissary of trest this is a sultai commander so going way off in a different direction here, but bear with me for a second. This is the famous Sultai Commander, 3-mana, three 3-3, three, three, that says each opponent can't draw more than one card each turn. And he ended up being so good that he was banned really, really quickly, because all you had to do was cast a single Windfall, and then, bam, your opponents have basically no cards left in their hand. What's weird to me about Leovold is that there's actually another card out there in Mono White called Spirit of the Labyrinth, a 2-mana, 3-1, enchantment creature spirit from born of the gods that says each player can't draw more than one card each turn this is one of the philosophies that i find is kind of troublesome when it comes to red and white it's that other colors sometimes can be so flexible in what they're able to do that they step on the color pie of red and white and it makes them have 
red, it makes red and white have less ability, less, less flexibility, less of an identity within the game. Spirit of the Labyrinth, it, it totally strikes me as a white card. It's restricting other people from, from drawing too many cards, but then Leovold comes around and says, not just something similar, but actually better. Spirit of the Labyrinth restricts all players from being able to draw more than one card, but Leovold says just your enemies. Which of those colors should that effect be, and why is the mono-white version worse than the Soltai version? I think that might be something that we need to put a magnifying glass on and take a hard look at if we're going to be designing cards that are, you know, good and, and awesome and can restrict people in that way, just like Leovold would, without them being completely broken. I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that maybe they've danced a little too far with some of the Soltai color pairs. They've eaten up a bit of the space that red and white could have been occupying that would have helped balance things out in a multiplayer format. Does that make sense? It does, but I also think that it's it's kind of like the Azuri argument that, you know, we've had in our Slack channel before. Uh, it's it's different colors doing the same thing in a different way. Whereas, you know, Spirit of Labyrinth, nobody draws more than one card, whereas those Soltai cards, they're playing it politically, so, you know, just your opponents can't. So it's a very similar thing, but I think, you know, if we can nitpick a little bit, and it's not the exact same thing, so it's not... So- so much encroaching, but it's it's just playing the same strategy, just a different take on it. Because, you know, Leovold is a very, like, the flavor was supposed to be political, so that's why I think the card kind of played out that way too, whereas Mono White is, is kind of known for those hate bears where it just levels the playing field for everybody, and I think that's where Spirit of the Labyrinth gets caught up in a little bit. So I, I agree to a point, but I... I, I you know, you also have like Hushwing Griff who get, you know, it's just a Torpor Orb on a stick, for example. I, yeah, I, I think it's, I don't think it's that other colors are stealing necessarily, but I think it's just Wizards playing around with the ability and how it fits in other colors. And I think just with Leovold, there was so much going on and he gave you access to, you know, some of the best colors in Magic. I think that's kind of what made it banably good. The thing that I'd say as a response to your argument there, you mentioned, oh, you know, these are things that other colors can do. We all have that, like, they all are all doing the same thing in different ways. The example that you gave was Hushring Griff being a torpor orb on a stick, both of them being able to stop abilities from creatures when they enter the battlefield. But torpor orb is a colorless card, and it isn't necessarily like a red or a blue or a green card. And if that effect appeared on, for example, a green card, then I, I think it would be a bit of a problem. I do like the argument that you put forward, that it's them doing the same thing in different ways, but what I think Magic needs to do is a bit more of the, I don't know, they do completely different things. I feel like that is going a little too far if they can all do the same things in different ways. I feel like they actually need to have different abilities in order to remain distinct and for the game to flourish within their individual identities. Yeah, well, I mean, I th- Leovold, well, if Leovold's a Boros card in colors with access to still a dozen wheels, it's still a super annoying card that probably gets banned. I, I mean, I it was a mistake. Well, that's it, just it. It's, I don't think that it's Leovold... It's a mistake. Yeah, I don't think it's less of a mistake in Boros. It's just a mistake full stop, so just... I don't think Leovold makes a good Boros card. I think it strikes me as a mono-white card. I think, luckily for you guys, Leovold has zero abilities in Commander because he's banned. So you guys don't get to worry about him, whereas the 60-card players like me, we we do get to. Granted, it's a very different game, very different format, you know, playing 60 cards, but he's super fun. But yeah, he he has zero abilities in Commander anyways, so... 
It's definitely good that he's banned. I can't disagree with that. Let's move on from that, though. We do seem to have a couple of different opinions about it, but I also want to get back to that Perforos thing that we were talking about earlier. One of the sections that I marked down here in our show notes is not just what does Wizards of the Coast need to do to, quote, fix Boros, but what do players need to do to fix Boros? And one of the things that I wanted to talk about was that players probably need to change their expectations just a little bit. We keep on expecting you know, red and white cards that are going to let us draw cards or something, but that isn't necessarily what they should do in order for them to become more viable within a commander game. I mentioned, for example, there's the assembled elision, which can provide you with more stuff as the game goes on. And then there are other types of things like Atali. Wizards can continue to explore with Atali effects. But I also think that one of the things that players need to do is stop expecting certain types of solutions because they'll come wrapped in different packages. And I actually think Perforos is a really good example of that. Technically speaking, I think that Perforos adequately conveys the type of speed that Red is usually capable of in a 20 life format against a single player. In Commander, one of the, quote, solutions to red or to white might be that they are faster than all of the other colors. And while it isn't maybe as much fun for the games to end so quickly, that is usually how games go in a one-on-one -on -one environment when someone's playing red or playing white. But Dana, I know you also mentioned there's sort of the, uh, the big dumb perforo sort of stuff that you mentioned, alienating all of our mono-red viewers, which is great, but do you want to expand a little bit more what you mean by the, sure. uh, well, the perforo system? Sure. Well, listen... They're, ter they're terrible people anyway, so like if they can alienate it, that's just what it is. <laughs> no, I I am kidding. Um, a little bit. No, I, I think you're right. I think people need to alter their expectations, and I think sometimes Boros can do that fast speed thing, and even though I find Perforos to be, you know, baby's first EDH deck level challenging to play, maybe that's there, there can be a couple speed decks. I just think the biggest problem is people, ha people have this mindset that Boros is bad, and they never reevaluate that. I think if you handed the guilds to somebody and you know told them to make a deck of whatever colors they wanted and then tell us what the problems with those colors are, absent anything they've heard in the past or anything they've been told, I just don't know if they're going to point out a lot of these things as problems with Boros the way they do repeating it as a problem with Boros. Like you hear ramp, for example, right? We hear regularly how Boros can't ramp. Well, Azorius isn't ramping either. Dimmer isn't ramping. Orzov isn't ramping, Rakdos isn't ramping, Izzet isn't ramping. People only complain about that with Boros. And Boros is a color with access to Mana Geyser and Battle Hymn and Seething Song. I mean, there's actual rituals in red that let you ramp, but people just want to say, oh, it can't ramp. Like it's a unique problem to Boros and like there aren't solutions. So I think when you talk about expectations, the expectation, I think a lot of times people just repeating what they've been told without actually thinking about it themselves. Yeah, I agree. I think people just try to shoehorn uh, one strategy across the others. You know, people think ramp only as uh, getting more lands in the battlefield. Right. And uh, just how Commander, you know, one one, per one person, I forget where I heard it, uh, they compared it to 60-card formats that are about resource management. You know, you're trying to maneuver the battlefield in a certain way, play around what the other people are doing, whereas Commander is resource accumulation. You're just trying to get as much stuff on the battlefield as soon as possible, have this big board state, and then kind of go from there. So everybody thinks of ramp as, how many lands can I get on the battlefield? How many signets can I get on the battlefield? That's ramp to them. But like you said, you know, you have ritual effects, mana geyser. I've, I've been killed more times by a mana geyser producing a ton of mana 
and you know casting an X spell or, or fueling the rest of the turn in some you know crazy spellslinger deck than I have by signets and you know somebody playing a bunch of lands out in, in a couple turns. So yeah, I, I think people just they think of you know ramp is only green because it gets lands. Card draws best in blue because it you know you have ponder or whatever you know draw spells you want. And they just kind of leave it at that, whereas they're not really taking how, the, you know, those those tweaks on a certain thing. Like we were just talking about with, you know, players can only draw one card per turn. It's they, they assume it's got to be one way, but not the take on it in a different color scheme. One thing that I especially like considering ramp and Dana, I, Matt, I think you guys brought up an excellent point there. Ramp can also come in different forms. One of my favorite conversations that we had in a different podcast earlier was about Balin Wandering Knight, and that is itself a form of saving mana because Balin can pay simply two mana to equip all of your equipment onto her, and that's an excellent rate, and that is technically mana advantage without actually having signets or artifacts or extra ramp spells on your side of the battlefield, anything like that. Ramp can be hidden in different ways that don't necessarily break the color pie, and that's another excellent way to try and and dig down and find where those those extra advantages can be can be located. Like that's an excellent example of them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, very much agree. There are also a handful of other different types of things that we can look for when it comes to card advantage or mana ramp. For example, in our last Battle Bond episode, we talked about the card Arena Rector. When it dies, it gets you a free Planeswalker. Or Dana, you mentioned your Jeru deck. It gets you Planeswalkers into your hand. Like, that isn't necessarily drawing you cards, but it is also getting you cards into your hand, and those are pretty excellent as well. I think it might also behoove players to kind of experiment a little bit. Recently on Reddit, we've been seeing a Tiana Auras deck. Have you guys seen this at all? I read a little bit about it earlier today. Um, it's running some pretty kind of like obscure old auras and stuff. Yeah, it's kind of a cool looking deck. Yeah, so Tiana ships cap uh, ships captain or ships caretaker, caretaker. from Din- caretaker that's right from dominaria she's a five mana three three with flying and first strike she's an angel artificer person but she basically says whenever one of your auras or equipments would be put into a graveyard from the battlefield you can return it to the owner's hand and right off the bat she kind of is like eh meh i'm not sure whether i'm really feeling it for her especially there's kind of an awkward timing thing if she dies and then the auras go to the graveyard you don't get them back to your hand if they were attached to her it's a little awkward but the way that we've seen this new tiana auras deck being played is actually that you put auras on your opponent's creatures because they're still technically auras that you control. So you can be a little political and put a bunch of auras on other people's creatures, and if those creatures die, your auras go back to your hand, thus preserving your card advantage. Or you can put stuff like pacifism effects on them, and when those creatures go away, you get those effects back to your hand as well. And that's a pretty neat take, actually. So you can kind of experiment around in Boros to try and find different ways of maintaining card advantage as well. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. There's there's a lot of clever things you can do if you're just willing to do clever things. Another thing that I think one of my friends is going to kill me if I don't mention is restriction cards. Matt, for example, you mentioned uh, Torpor Orb earlier, which prevents Enter the Battlefield effects. Another one that a buddy of mine is really a fan of is Relic of Progenitus, which can exile graveyards, or the enchantment Rest, of, Rest in Peace, which also exiles graveyards. And I think that those are also secretly excellent card advantage spells as well because they can completely wreck another opponent's day especially if you're not using a bunch of enter the battlefield effects or if you're not using graveyards at all in your deck 
even if these Torpor Orb or Rest in Peace cards don't necessarily move forward your strategy, they can be so prohibitive to other people that they can help you keep pace with them throughout the course of the game. That's another really excellent thing that I think people could do a little bit more of. Maybe those restrictive cards that, you know, bring other people down to your level and make them play a bit fairer, those might be also really useful for people to take a second look at. Matt, I know you also had something to say about the mana costs in Boros decks too. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, one thing that I thought was kind of silly, just while we're on the topic of, you know, ramping and, you know, red doesn't do it well, Boros doesn't do it well, etc., is when you're looking at the top played cards uh, for Boros, you know, the, the staples of, of that color scheme, you have the Soul Ring, you have Boros Signet, you have Boros Charm, but then the, the top two played creatures I thought were kind of interesting and wanted to point them out to you guys. Uh, Sun Titan, uh, which is a six mana creature, and then Gisela Blade of Gold Knight, which is a seven mana creature, are the one and two played creatures in Boros decks. Sun Titan coming in at 46%, uh, and Gisela being 41% of all decks in the color pair. For a color scheme in a bunch of decks that don't really ramp that well, uh, I, I thought it was just interesting that the top played creatures are six and seven mana cost. Uh, it, it just seems like you're, you're trying to, you know, like Dana said when we were talking about it a little bit, put a square peg in a round hole. Uh, you're, you're trying, yes, they're both very, very good creatures. I'm not saying that at all. But you're you're trying to make these, you know, very expensive creatures fit in the uh, color, you know, color pair that doesn't get very much mana very quick. Um, but I think, I bet if you took a look at some of those decks too that were running like the Sun Titans and the, you know, eight drop angels or whatever it is that 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 they're running those people probably aren't offsetting that by running something like mana geyser to get that big huge turn to drop those or like battle him or so i i I bet a lot of that is also the situation where people are like you said square peg round hole they're jamming these big creatures and just because they can't ramp out lands like in green they just shrug and can't do it and complain versus looking to see well red does have ramp it just doesn't do it like green does so you need to adjust accordingly that's a good point. Not that like players' complaints have been completely invalid, sure. because there are certainly a lot of things that can be improved about both red and white, but we also need to take a look and use a mirror on ourselves to make sure that we're complaining about the right stuff. If we complain that Boros doesn't have ramp, we got to make sure that we're not playing cards that are too expensive for us to try and cast. Well, one good example kind of uh, about a Boros thing, and I caught myself doing it, a few years ago when I built an Archangel Avison deck was I was running a bunch of different wheel effects. And at some point I realized, oh, I should put Geth's Grimoire in here, which is a four mana in, uh, artifact that whenever an opponent discards a card, you draw a card. So in addition to just incidental, someone cycles a card, I would draw a card, whatever. Whenever I would cast a wheel, I draw all the cards in the world. And at the time, I remember thinking, well, this is ridiculous. Like, I shouldn't have to, in Boros, run this, this artifact just to maximize my chances to get draw. But that's when I kind of caught myself, well, well, why not? Like, if you're playing green with a bunch of tokens, you have to run doubling season to take advantage of them too. Like, there's a lot of cards you run to maximize the thing your colors are doing. But for some reason, in Boros, doing that same exact thing annoyed me running Pyromancer's Goggles to copy Magmatic Insight. Like, in Boros, it annoyed me that I was doing that. And in other colors, well, of course I'm running Anointed Procession in my Tesa deck to copy of the tokens I make. So for some reason, like, in Boros, just you get that mentality 
that, oh, I have to jump through these hoops that you don't have to when you jump through hoops in other colors. Yeah, so it's a really good point. I really like that. And it also helps us move into our final segment of this podcast. And that's simply that one of the things that maybe players can do to fix Boros is possibly to dig a little deeper. There are cards that are very good that sometimes we have to go researching to find. They're not on the front pages. They're not in pre-cons. They're things that we can go and find that will help us out. So right now we're going to challenge the stats on some of these cards. Matt, do you want to let us know your challenge the stats where we name a card that we think is seeing a little bit too little play or too much play? Sure. Give me, let me pull it up real quick, actually, because I closed it on accident. Okay, so the card I have... Um, for you guys is gift of estates uh it is a white sorcery for one and a white uh and it is and it reads if an opponent controls more lands than you so an opponent doesn't have to be every uh, but if an opponent controls more lands than you search your library for up to three planes cards reveal them and put them into your hand then shuffle your library so if you're playing a multicolor uh deck you can grab shock lands you can grab duels you can grab whatever you want with those and it is conditional, but you get three lands and put them into your hand. It's like a one-shot land tax. So white, it, it, yes, it's not a ramp, it's not a cultivate, it's not a Kadama's Reach, putting lands on the battlefield. But, you know, turn two, you, maybe you miss a land drop, but you have this. You're not missing a land drop for a while. That gives you plenty more time to draw into more lands. But yeah, so Gift of Estates is only played in 2,630 decks total right now. That number is terribly low when you consider, you know, all these other, you know, land tax itself is played in over 10,000 decks, whereas Gift of Estates is barely a quarter of that. I think that if you want a good ramp spell in Azorius even, or Boros, or anything like that, you don't want to spend your time drawing cards to hit your land drops. Use this as a ramp spell. Get those lands, play your land for the turn, and just have a couple more for the future. I think Gift of Estates is a very, very good card that wasn't a pre-con, but probably was one of those cards that got taken out because... It wasn't the traditional ramp that people usually thought of. That's a good point. Ramp can be really good when it, you know, a rampant growth or a cultivate will get those cards onto the battlefield. But sometimes something like a gift, a gift of estates can be in a way just as good because while you're not getting those cards immediately onto the battlefield, it is setting you up for the next several turns. Someone who's ramping a whole lot might run out of ramp spells and run out of lands in their hand and then stop playing lands, but you'll have yours throughout the next couple turns to make sure that you're still set, which will help you catch up to them. So that's a really good pick. Yeah, yeah it's a great you, card. If you're, if you're playing if, yeah, if you're playing white and you're playing against a green deck, 99% of the time when you cast this, the green player is going to have more lands than you in play. So you're getting a better rate then, uh, when you, if you think about it that way, than Sky Shroud Claim is, where you get two force and put them on the battlefield. You're getting three planes cards. Again, you can get duels with it, and they're just going right into your hand. So, And it's only two mana. It's half the cost. So I think people, they just think it, if it doesn't put it in the battlefield, it doesn't count, and that's very much not the case. Dana, what's your pick for challenging the stats? My pick is one that we mentioned earlier in the draw portion of the show, which, was, which is Outpost Siege. For those who don't know, Outpost Siege comes into play and you choose one of two modes, either cons or dragons. Cons is the mode that is kind of relevant here, and it says, at the beginning of your upkeep, exile the top card of your library. Until end of turn, you may play that card. The dragons mode, whenever a creature enters a battle or leaves the battlefield, it deals one damage to any target. But the, the reason I'm picking this is for the, for the cons mode. So for four mana, essentially, it's giving you a draw that you have to use that turn. And if you're, you know, your, your typical deck, 
ranging from 30 to 35 lands, excuse me, from 33 to 35 lands, there's a one in three chance that's just going to be your land drop for the turn. So occasionally you're going to, you know, draw some giant obliterate spell that maybe you don't want to cast that turn and it's just going to exile and go away. But, you know, I would say in decks that I, that where I play it, nine out of ten times I just cast that spell. It's just a Frexian Arena for one more mana. And the reason I think it doesn't get played enough is it's in less than 5,000 decks on EDH Rec, and it's probably the best repeatable draw spell available in red compared to Frexian Arena, which is in 40,000 decks, 10 times as many. Necropotence is in 14,000. Underworld Connections, which is a bad Frexian Arena, is in 7,000. Greed's in 5,000. So there's multiple black repeatable draw spells that are in more decks than the best red repeatable draw spell. If you're playing Boros or even Mono Red, man, I, I feel like 99% of the time, Outpost Siege should be in your deck. It's a fantastic card, and it should be in way more than 5,000 lists. Yeah, 100%. And when people forget about the other side of Frontier Siege, too, when a, you know, a, I think it's just a creature leaves the battlefield, you can ping, ping, is it just a single target for one? Single target. But I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're playing Goblin, Goblin Bombardment, wins a lot of games. So I mean, this yeah, is... exactly. Well, and I, I've won a game because I, I drew into a Frontier Siege. I was playing my Jeskai Tokens deck, drew a Frontier Siege, played it on the alternate version, not the the draw spell, um, and then I played Mog Infestation on myself, killed all my like thirty creatures, dealt thirty damage, then all my new tokens came in, and I had a Perforce out and finished off the table. So. I mean, I probably would have won that way anyways, but it sped up the process really quickly. Yeah, for sure. I yeah, mean, I think I think Dana's going to make fun of you for that Perforos there, Matt. That's fine. It was in a Jeskai deck. I had to draw into it naturally. The point is definitely that it's a good enchantment, and I like its versatility. In a way, and this is something that we didn't really mention, but versatile spells are also kind of a form of card advantage because they give you more options throughout the game. And so Outpost Siege definitely makes a really good a really good versatile spell that can, as Dana mentioned, help you draw some extra cards, get some extra advantage in there, and that's really cool. Joey, what do you got for us? My pick this week is going to be a red and white card called Deflecting Palm. Initially, mm. the card that I wanted to pick is actually Sunforger, because a friend of mine has beaten my butt with Sunforger so many times that it's a little embarrassing. It's a really versatile equipment, but right now, 43% of Boros decks are currently running Sunforger, so I think it's a well-known enough card that I can leave it where it is. It's a really neat hammer that you can unattach to get free spells, and that's a really cool effect that more people could probably be taking advantage of. But the one that he most recently beat me with Sunforger, he fetched the spell Deflecting Palm when he unequipped a Sunforger, and man, did it hurt. I swung his way with my 22 22 Ishai, and then he fetched out this spell that I did not see coming. Deflecting Palm is a two-mana Boros instant that says the next time a source of your choice would deal damage to you this turn, prevent that damage. If damage is prevented this way, Deflecting Palm deals that much damage to that source's controller. Holy crap, did that hurt. Because instead of dealing 22 damage to him like I thought I was gonna do, I went from 17 to 0. It was such... A bizarre experience that I just completely didn't see coming, and Deflecting Palm currently is only seeing play in 20% of Boros decks, and overall, 2,980 decks total. And man, especially after the way that it completely wrecked me out of nowhere, I think that that's got to see a whole lot more play. If someone's about to deal you damage with a huge anything, I mean, 
you're just master of combat here. Deflecting palm's gonna hurt it and hurtle right back at them. It does. It it packs a really powerful punch. The modern player in me loves 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 defe- deflecting palm. I've seen it deflect emercools to lightning bolts. It's it's a very good card. I I agree. And two two mana is really easy to leave up too. Like that's it's you know there are some cards that are really difficult to save mana for. Um, deflecting palms, particularly in Boros. No one's going to look at you funny if you just don't spend the last two mana, and you'll absolutely house them if they're if they swing on something huge. And it works great with Infect. <laughs> oh, that's mean. Yeah. It says a source of your choice would deal damage. It doesn't even target. You can actually, like, he got through under my Swiftfoot boots, and it's a source, so if someone's, like, pointing a huge comet storm your way for 90, Deflecting Palm can get that too. It just, it's a really impressive card that people need to be playing in more than just 20% of Boros decks. And I think that digging a little deeper and finding cards like the ones that we've mentioned can can be really useful to help solve the, quote, problems of the color of this color pair. There are maybe some problems that are really valid with Boros, but there are also maybe some that, you know, we could change our expectations as players on in order to help fix the way that Boros works in Commander. Really quick before we leave off, I kind of do want to end on a positive note because we've been ragging on this color pair for a while. Just what are some things that Boros does do well? I mean, it wipes the board. You've got all the wrath effects. You've got land destruction. Yeah, just it blow, destroy all is, is something that, uh, that Boros does very, very well. Yeah, Ravages of War or Armageddon or those Obliterate Yokel Hops, those are things that are really good in those color pairs. My same buddy who wrecked me with the Deflecting Palm, he has an Atali deck and he played a Wildfire to get rid of everyone's lands, but his Atali was still alive, so then he could just attack at will and get a whole bunch of free stuff, and we couldn't do anything about it because our resources were gone. And while maybe there's a social contract that people don't like to violate where, you know, we want to keep our lands alive, that land destruction isn't as much fun, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't a very effective way to play the color. Yeah, and uh, the positive I will point out is mostly on individual cards, um, because that's easy to kind of overlook this, but Boros has the two best creature removal spells in the game targeted in Swords of Plowshares and Path to Exile. Blasphemous Act might be the best board wipe in the game, because it's pretty much always one mana to wipe the board. Uh, Chaos Warp is one of the best utility removal spells in the format just full stop so there's a lot of stuff in boros that's really really strong that i think people kind of forget when they think about how powerful some of these individual cards are yeah they also as matt mentioned have wrath of god effects all over the place which are just fantastic they're really really great at equipment in particular that same buddy the one that wrecked me with the deflecting palm he was playing in a kiri and bruce deck and that thing packs a huge punch and it kind of has almost a a solution to the card advantage problem because he's got two commanders so he's always got something to do and it is gonna hurt a lot boros is really great at aggro especially with cards like sarah ascendant the one mana one one with lifelink that is actually a six six with lifelink and flying and commander sort of like an EDH Tarmogoyf almost. Like, even if there are some ways that people don't like playing the game to make it go too quick, like with Perforos or like with Land Destruction sometimes, like there are still, these are some of the color specialties. And I think that it's wrong to just completely discard them just because of a social contract. It's something that you should talk with your playgroup about because these colors have specialties for a good and valid reason. And I think it's right to embrace them sometimes. Sure. Yeah, I think the social contract, like you said, Joey, 
land destruction is kind of frowned upon because that means people don't get to do their big splashy things that people play commander for. So I think that's one reason Boros kind of gets that negative reaction from everybody's because a lot of people just assume, oh, you're going to blow up all my lands. Great. Now I don't get to play the game when really everybody's still playing. It's just, you know, how are you going to work around it? So, But I would also say just because maybe the social contract discourages that, don't just cross your arms and go oh, and give up. You know, uh, hand destruction is often discouraged too, and people don't give up on black because they're discouraged from mind twisting everyone's hand constantly. Or people don't give up on blue because they're discouraged from running 25 counter spells. There's a lot of things with the social contract that hit other colors, and this is another example where it hits Boros, and everyone acts like that's unique to Boros, that they're discouraged from doing this one thing. When it's not, there's other things other colors are discouraged from doing too. So don't just give up. Maybe even though a thing is discouraged, maybe you don't need to do it if you just get a little creative. And the best way to do it is also probably to talk with your group of friends that you're playing with as well. Because they can let you know where they are in terms of those socially acceptable or unacceptable practices. There are some groups that are like, land destruction? Heck yeah, that's fine with me. That's what the colors do. And then there are some groups that are like, we don't like counter spells. And it's like, well, let's all talk so that we can all have fun in our ways because all of those ways of having fun are still valid. And you just need to communicate a bit more. And I think communicating a bit more is one of the ways that we're going to be able to fix our, quote, Boros problem. I miss having friends. (laughs) I want to get them someday. That's why that's why that you moved. Note. That's why I moved. I gotta find new friends. Play too much <laughs> Boros. Note, I hate to call the episode to a close on that note, but that's where we're gonna leave it. <laughs> Listeners, we'd really like to hear back from what you guys think the solution to the Boros problem should be, if it has been maybe solved a bit more than people will admit, or if it still needs a whole lot more work. Let us know what you think. This is definitely a weird topic, and we'd like to have as much opinion on it so that we can all sort of converge on how best to move forward and how we can all have fun playing any of the colors in Commander. On that, I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me, and if our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Be my friend on Twitter, at Mathemus55. You can find me on Twitter, at Dana Roach, unless you're a Perforos player. Then don't get a hold of me at all. Wow. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, no matter what deck you play. You can follow EDHREC on Facebook and Twitter at EDHREC and the EDHREC subreddit if you have a question or request for a new site feature. Uh, P.S. If the EDHREC Facebook page gets 5,000 likes, there's going to be a giveaway. So head on over there and smash that like button for a chance at a cool prize. We're also doing a giveaway for the EDHREC cast Twitter page once we hit 1,000 followers. So make sure that you check out the EDHREC cast on Twitter as well. You can check out Dana's other podcast at cmdrcentral.lib. You can check us out at edhretcast.libson.com or contact us at edhretcast at gmail.com. And you can also find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help boost our visibility and help other folks find the podcast. You can find this podcast and more on EDHREC's very own community content spotlight section where we feature as many other Commander content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. And until then, remember, EDHREC wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. So either way, we're a real podcast. We're a podcast. (laughs) Joe, we need to work on your tooting your own horn abilities. Well, I mean, once we get Matt off the podcast, then we'll be a real podcast. I technically never was on the podcast. I've been fired, remember? Remember?